<clears throat> I mean, one that one that I love, I, I love their store is, is Mainspring Energy. So it's a it's a, a linear generator. And you know, when we did some work with with PG&E, this is this is all public through the CPUC. But you know, we took a look at how to find clean teams of technologies to substitute for diesel at the substation. So if you think about what happens in California with these public safety power shutoffs, California IOUs will shut down transmission during high wind days because um, that can prevent wildfires. Well, that means customers are de-energized for a day, two days, three days, four days. What PG&E did, which is actually you know, brilliant, is, is they deployed diesel to substations to light up customers even if transmission was down. Welcome back to the Clean Techies podcast, where we interview the top climate founders and VCs to get their best advice for you. On this episode, I interview Chris Richardson, Executive Director of Uptake Alliance and partner at ADL Ventures, where he leads their energy and transportation practices. Uptake Alliance is the newest rockstar member of the New York State entrepreneurial ecosystem that connects organizations with startups that are solving the problems that these organizations face avoiding piloting to death for these companies. We talk about the relationship between pilots and commercialization, specific opportunities in climate tech, and other pieces of guidance Chris has from his time as a founder. Thank you to all of you for listening, and let's get into the show. Enjoy the episode. Shout out to our sponsors, Net Zero Insights. Net Zero Insights' mission is to enable the transition to a sustainable future by giving decision makers access to the leading market intelligence platform on climate innovation. Through the Net Zero platform, Net Zero Insights provides high quality data and insights on the CTVC ecosystem by being the best at tracking orgs and funding rounds. I've had a great time using this to prepare for the podcast and researching companies, funding rounds, VCs, and the latest I need to know about the ecosystem. Use the link in our description to schedule your personalized demo with the team and claim your 10% discount. Thanks again to the Netzier Insights team for sponsoring this show. Hey there, are you building a climate tech business and looking for very specialized talent? Consider reaching out to our sponsors, NextWave Partners. NextWave are experts in talent acquisition, recruitment, and retention across the climate tech, renewables, and ESG spaces globally. So if your team is growing or you're looking to make a career change yourself, feel free to reach out to NextWave at next-wavepartners.com or reach out to one of their consultants directly via their LinkedIn page. All right. Welcome to the show, Chris. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me here. Perfect. Where in the world are we finding you today? So... Today, I'm in Denver, Colorado. Uh, spent part of my life in Chicago and Boston. I spend a lot of time in New York, Florida, and California these days, but, but live, in, live in Denver with my family. And Perfect. And so how long have you been in Denver? Is that sort of a recent move or was that always uh, sort of the main thing? It was a COVID move. Okay. Um, so my, my wife and I got married in, in Beaver Creek, uh, I guess, almost 10 years ago, um, but no, no connection with, with Denver specifically. We just thought, you know, after COVID, there was no, no place in particular we needed to be. Might as well be in a place that's an hour and a half from the mountains and, uh, and checking every other box we, we have to check. That's great. No, I, one of the reasons why we ask is it's like ever since the pandemic and also it's cl- people in climate interestingly sometimes have really interesting answers about where they're living so again yeah. like you said very cool very cool um uh reason for that um 
Well, yeah, I mean, look, I, we're super excited for this episode. Uh, I think it's very, very near and dear to things that we care about. Um, we'll get into this later, but Uptake is a play with Nyserta, which we're huge fans of. Um, and I think this is a huge opportunity to talk about clean infrastructure, which is a relatively undefined space um, that I'm super interested in. So super excited. But why don't we kick it off with, can you talk a little bit about who you are and what you do? For sure. Um, so I think of myself as an entrepreneur masquerading as consultant. Um, so certainly a serial entrepreneur, um, you know, one of my three hats today is as an entrepreneur, uh, leading, uh, an EV project development business. Um, but at the end of the day, we work with, with corporates at, at ADL ventures in order to, um, solve some of their challenges related to climate, either spinning in novel technologies, spinning out technologies that get stuck within those organizations. Um, and so that's, that's the hat I wear as, as partner at ADL ventures, uh, and then really excited to your point around NYSERDA about our work with Uptake Alliance, which is a NYSERDA funded venture development program that, that launched a couple, couple of months ago. Uh, we'll have our first collective start in January. And we, we aim to ensure that we create the conditions for frontier climate ventures to thrive. So, and just to piggyback off that, well, I'd love to talk a bit about your background, um, but you mentioned that you work with corporates and also technologies to figure out how to spin it out. That's, you know, very much sounding like different than a traditional venture fund. Can you talk mm. about the difference there? Yeah, no, I appreciate that question. So ADL Ventures is not a, a VC, which is a question I'd love, I'd love, to, uh, I'd love to answer. And we, we like that it says ventures in the name, people return our call, they think we're fun. Um, but at the end of the day, we, we call it ADL Ventures because we develop and launch new climate tech ventures. That is our goal, right? And so if we are successful over the course of the next two, three, four years, we will have developed you know, effectively a VC portfolio worth of companies that we've, uh, that we've spun out, that we've, that we've supported. Um, so we'll have equity stakes in those companies, but we will do so in partnership with corporates rather than putting capital to work in order to secure um, those equity positions. And so did you ever consider, depending on your influence, like the difference that this brings versus a traditional fund in your career decisions? Yeah. So, I mean, if if you think about the way that we are structuring at least this spin out proposition um the the economics of of getting smaller stakes but you know two percent five percent ten percent stakes in a in a significant number of companies that that you've been paid to create is tremendously more interesting to us than you know deploying tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of capital for a similar similar stake so we we like to think of ways in which we can tap into um, tap into creative creative ways in order to um, sort of develop that that portfolio. But the at, at the end of the day, we're we're in it to advance the ecosystem, right? Like it, it's not about our own economics. It's you know for me, it's retiring by 2050 in a net zero America. If I if we hit a net zero America in 2040, 2042, I retire early. Um, and so that's that's the overriding goal. And our thesis, um, you know, certainly consistent with what we're doing at Uptake Alliance as well, our thesis is that the way to affect that change, the way to drive a net zero America is to start with the corporates, the problems that, that they need, need solved and engage the entrepreneurial ecosystem to solve them, right? And so that's one pathway. And then the other pathway is to take technology 
that's stuck within those organizations and, and try to find opportunities to get them out in the wild, right? So we worked with, um, you know, a, a large U.S. utility, one of the largest U.S. utilities to spin out hydrogen embrittlement coating, which is going to allow hydrogen to be blended in the natural gas system without embrittling natural gas transmission. We spun out, uh, we spun out methane leak detection company called, called Trellisense from a large oil and gas player that wasn't wasn't allowing it to flourish in the way that uh, in the way that it needed to. And so we identified new sources of capital, helped the CEO get launched, bring in those first customers, those first LOIs, and see it see it off to the promised land. Um, at the end of the day, we're in it for that path to a net zero America, and this is the most effective way we have found to get there, at least in our little niche. We wanted to take a quick break to tell you about another climate tech podcast. Well, literally. Ryan Grant Little hosts a podcast called Another Climate Tech Podcast, where he interviews climate tech founders and VCs, which, as I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you will love. So we highly recommend checking him out. The link will be in the description to this episode. Now back to the show. It kind of sounds like a, a lightweight way of engaging with like innovation, whereas like you said, maybe you'd have more difficulty putting in capital, getting equity, going through the whole process of a traditional venture fund. Sure. And, and to be clear, it, we work very closely with venture, right? Like it, it's, a, it's a really critical piece of everything that we do. Our thesis, however, is that if you start with corporates and secure corporate traction, the natural outcome of that is going to be you know, funding, dilutive funding, right? And, and so we think through obviously the role of corporates and cor- corporate traction in driving, driving venture investment. But we also think through, especially at this moment in time, the role of non-dilutive funds, grants, et cetera, in order to um, both drive both pieces of that, drive the corporate traction as well as to, to drive that investment. Got it. No, that's super interesting because I think that's, you know, I, people kind of liken venture uh, in climate to venture and, you know, and traditionally in software where you generally have to have only one seat at the table and you know later rounds you'll bring in more people but mm. it's very much a winner take all mindset in terms of how you're trying to get ownership and climate isn't necessarily that because you have yeah. you know what everyone talks about which is the climate capital stack a lot of different fit players needed um for success so it's cool to hear that this is like potentially another model going forward because i think more of those are needed yeah, we've we've all got our niche, and and that's the one we found. The thing that I'd love to talk about um, to start off with is also building building a bit of your background. So you worked at EV Button, which I think is by no mystery extremely relevant, likely to the work you do now. It was leveraging existing infrastructure to electrify, um, and from my understanding, let me know if I'm correct, supporting building owners and operators in that process. Um, making it easier for them to leverage their existing assets. Could you talk a bit about that experience and what you did there? Yeah, I'm happy to. So uh, co-founder of EV Button is, is one of my three hats and it emerged from, from work we did with Todd Hines and the team over at XL Fleet, which was a, a company that uh, went public via SPAC uh, three or four years ago. Um, their their fortune cha- fortunes changed like some other companies that spac at the time. And some of the work that we were doing with Excel around electrifying arenas and other locations with with you know low load factors right like high peak demand and and low usage the rest of the time 
we we identified this is this is a real opportunity and so we we spun that out created the ev button and have worked for two or three years on developing that that model first at um an arena in new york and and now at emerin bank arena in in florida outside of miami and the the model is this if you think about an arena you've got four to five megawatts of power being drawn during a hockey game during a taylor swift concert and you've got 5,000 full parking spots during that event. Outside of that event, which is 80 to 90% of the time, you have an underutilized asset. You have 5,000 empty parking spots. You've got four to five megawatts of, of demand uh, or of capacity that are, that are unused. How do we take advantage of that asset? And the model that we've put forward is to leverage that asset for, for fleet electrification. Can you put together a portfolio of fleets that that can um, be a little bit flexible, right? Municipal transit, school buses, Uber and Lyft uh, rideshare, uh, even even freight. Can you put together that port portfolio of, of fleets that can trade a little bit of flexibility for lower cost, right? The cost is is significantly lower when you're able to leverage underutilized infrastructure because you not only don't have to pay for tens of millions of capex that would take multiple years in order to build the TND system to support that that 4 to 5 megawatt hub but you also don't pay demand charges right the the monthly peak demand is also being set by the arena during those events anything under that demand umbrella as we call it bears no demand charges which as you know many folks know are comprised 20 to 50% of a commercial uh, electricity bill so you're able to save tens of millions of dollars of upfront cost, 20 to 50% um, in terms of the, the ongoing cost from, from lowering demand charges. There are a lot of fleets that are willing to offer a little bit of flexibility not to be parking during those events in order to benefit from some of those savings. And so you talked a bit about, first of all, it sounds like a super interesting space. Um, and definitely, if you think about what might be a good retrofit, you know, an existing infrastructure to use a lot of electricity, um, then having the space to actually do something with it seems like a perfect fit. Why do you think that this isn't already commonplace? And maybe it's just that this just got started and the headwinds are now, but what would, what is the resistance behind it not being essentially the, the 90% of every arena in the United States? It's hard. Um, it, it took us two or three years identifying the combination of fleets that can can work well in this scenario. And so that's, you know, a business model type scenario, but that's also um, that's also a, you know, a, a very project specific scenario as well. So, um, you know, it, it's it's not easy to find to find that balance. Right. And you think about, um, you know, a nearby, you know, hey, let's let's electrify Amazon's fleet. They live two miles or they're they're they're. DC is two miles away from this arena. This is going to be a great fit for Amazon. They're just going to charge here overnight. They'll save so much money. They won't have to. They won't have to upgrade so much of their their DC. Amazon is a really, you know, it's a humming operation. They run things out of their their DC in a way that is that's just in time. Um, it is is an operational miracle. Anything that sends Amazon trucks two miles away, and while they wait to charge something and then come come back, isn't going to work. 
um, right? They, the, they need to be charging while it's loading and then go out, deliver, um, deliver what they need to do and come back again. So that's just one example of like a scenario that seems intuitively like it's easy, but it, it's not. In, in fact, you need to rely on a, a different portfolio of fleets. Um, and, you know, I, I think the other piece about that model that, that makes it different, difficult is that charging by itself is not yet a good business, right? Like Tesla has been doing charging for 10 years, maybe not quite 10 years. I don't even know the number, like a long number of years. It is just now developing a, a profitable charging business. Most charging businesses have low utilization and it, and it doesn't work great. The opportunity here is to make the market by, um, by finding the fleets who could be a good fit and making it as easy as possible for them to electrify. And that's why we offer financing options such as electrification as a service in order to get that done. Okay, that makes sense. And yeah, it seems like a lot of the things have to do with the right formula behind people who can utilize the space well enough, like you said, and again, have that flexibility for having to vacate whenever they need to. Yeah. Um, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And I think I just wanted some clarity on to, you know, this seems like a really great solution. There must be something there. And, you know, it definitely is. Um, so, I would, you know, I'd love to talk about this, but I think we'll get a chance to talk about charging as a service, those business models and how that relates to um, infrastructure as a whole. I want to just round out this point, which is your own experiences and how that impacts how you look at climate tech. So you were previously, you went first from what I understand is uh, within HR tech, um, you built a solution uh, that was, I think, more, I guess, <laughs> not necessarily very climate related, um, but it was something that focused on um, talent. Uh, and then you moved into a solution that focused on uh, building or business organizations in terms of assessing them. And now you're in climate. What was the transition going from probably these very obviously non-climate related businesses to um, now working at ADL Ventures and Uptake? Yeah, so I'd, I'd go back a little further, right? Spent six years in energy and transportation consulting in, in Chicago, um, you know, focused on things like how we convert coal generating stations and power plants to biomass, um, for example, in Canada? And the answer is you would have to deforest all of Canada. Um, so, you know, that's some of that work has, has been done, you know, I guess I'd have to, to do a little, little math, but, you know, 15, 15, 20 years ago, working in, in consulting in, in Chicago, um, you know, after that went to, went to Enernoc, which is, uh, as, as many folks know, was, was the leading demand response company in, in the world, um, now, now bought by NLX, uh, where I was running demand response product marketing. Um, and then, yeah, to your point, uh, Launched a couple of couple of different startups, um, one of which exited in 2019 before coming back to to climate um, at at ADL. But I, I think you know you mentioned some of this stuff in HR. It was, it was actually an extension of the the work that I did at Enernoc, where you're trying at, at, as well as the work at, with EV Button. It's it's leveraging existing assets in in a smarter way, um, and so. Think about demand response. So instead of building, uh, you know, a new a new power plant to serve the top eight hours per day or per year of of demand, you can work with CNI customers, commercial industrial customers, to curtail their consumption during those you know six eight hours per year where you have have that peak demand, and you save a power plant, you save multiple power plants. 
um, you know, the work that, that I did over at, over at Talent Response was, was very similar, right? Uh, working with consulting firms like the one that I worked at and to some degree, the one that I work at now to, how, to think through when, when your demand increases and decreases, how do you balance that out with flexible resources so that you can ultimately lead a more profitable project, take, adv- take advantage of, of resources more effectively? And you know, certainly consistent with the the model of leveraging underutilized assets that we've we've already talked about with DB Button. Thank you for all of that background, even you know, even more in depth than that original synopsis. Um, I'd love to transition, I guess, with that. Now that we've talked to EV Button and set the background, the biggest things I think for your um, role, especially, we'll get to uptake is the ability to set up a venture development program that intersects with a lot of different facets. And your own experiences likely reflect that um, as being able to be the person at the champion of that. What do you think from, especially for the audience looking to figure out what are the right experiences to go after, what have been the most impactful lessons from those previous roles that help you in your role today? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's the pain and suffering of trying to sell into corporates that has informed our our theory of change for for uptake, right? Um, you know, think about the way that we we tr- traditionally try to to develop and scale climate solutions, right? A lot of it's developed at universities in the labs. This is pretty cool technology. Um, you know, we look for funding to allow us to continue to develop that technology. From there, we we say, hey, we we have a product. Let's take it to to our customer. Let's take it to the corporate and and see if we can secure that deal. That is a really hard way to go if you don't have the buy-in from the corporate that this is a gating issue, the gating issue that they need to address, right? And so it's significantly more compelling if we're able to invert that process. And so instead of saying, you know, here's the technology, let's raise money to get to the point at which we can sell it to a corporate, let's start with the corporate. Let's start with a problem that needs to be solved, an executive who's willing for that problem to be solved, an articulation of the willingness to pay for that problem to be solved, and then issue a call call to action to the entrepreneurial community to address that challenge, right? That's a very different um, mechanism, and it makes it significantly easier if you're able to adapt your business plan and your your business model to that problem to secure commercial traction, to secure uptake, right? So we we thought long and hard about what to name this venture development program, and ultimately it became so clear that it could only be uptake because for us, that's the only metric that matters. The only metric that matters is adoption. You know, I, I don't care about, um, you know, an, an accelerator that says they've raised, you know, 2.4, you know, their portfolio companies have raised $2.4 billion of, of, of funding. That's cool. That's not as impactful as like units in market decarbonization as a result of the, the, the deployment of technologies. Um, so that's what we're in it for. And uptake is a single metric that covers both climate impact and market adoption in that, in that single metric. I definitely agree with that. I think there is a lot of emphasis about what is traction in climate and people can use funding. People can use the amount of partners they brought to the table. But time and time again, I think there's a thesis that's coming around, which is revenue and pilots and traction is more important than everything. Heck yeah. 
when you're looking at the companies that come across your table, and honestly, we've kind of jumped ahead a little bit, we probably should after this, just take a step back and explain, you know, what is Uptake Alliance and how does it interact with ADL? The thing I want to ask while we're on this point is when companies come to you or corporates come to you and they're asking you for advice on what metrics to track, of course, there's a bunch of different metrics for each different project. Mm. So you're not really able to quantify that. But I mean, you're not able to generalize that. But generally speaking, like, is there a rule of thumb in terms of, okay, you should be generating revenue with your first pilot versus it's okay to be unpaid for some time? Essentially asking the unpaid versus paid pilot question, because that's something that keeps coming up. Yeah, there's so many different ways I could take that, uh, that preamble and, and that question. Um, obviously, there's a trade-off, right? Um, by by asking a corporate to pay for something, it it shows skin into the game. It shows that they're going to be your actual real partner in in testing this. They're going to put resources against it because they've they've made the organizational commitment to to put resources behind it. Right. If you can't get them to pay a dollar, that's probably an indication that they're not going to be fully invested in testing this solution to figure out whether it can can get to market. Um, so that's not a hard and fast rule. I'm sure there, there are examples where you can offer a free pilot in exchange for other things, right? A commitment for a public case study and singing your praises from the mountaintop, right? Um, you know, I think there are other, other things one can negotiate in a pilot that makes it worth, worth doing for, for, the, um, for the startup. Um, you know, I, th I think from a corporate perspective, I can think of a lot of corporates who have been that first customer, taken that risk, and then have not benefited from it. And so I think one way to get around some of these challenges is to is to negotiate in some of these early pilot deals that if if that corporate is paying for the first pilot, if that corporate is making your co company ultimately successful at the end of the day, you as an entrepreneur should be willing to to offer significantly preferential terms to that first customer. Because the second and third customer and the fourth customer and the fifth cu customer are infinitely easier to secure after that first. And so whether it's most favored nation pricing, cost plus pricing, an equity stake, um, you know, royalties, like there are all sorts of different ways in which you can arrange that first first pilot and that that first customer relationship to ensure that um, all parties are benefiting and making sure that that corporate is invested in your success. Yeah, I think that's, it's something that is hard to balance for some people, especially being in climate. And we can talk about this later on, just putting off the putting up the preface that pilots will look different, as well as the amount of companies and buyers that you can have of your technology to begin with. Mm. Some industries will have a lot of different, you know, smaller to medium sized businesses that can adopt a technology versus an industry where there's only a handful of really large players, so the pilots are more meaningful there. That balance really, really we hear um, both on this podcast and even through the companies that we talk to on a daily basis, that confusion being a big part. Um, but before we get ahead of ourselves, I will just ask if you can explain Uptake Alliance quickly in like a minute or two, just generally speaking, uh, you know, what is it and what do people get out of it? Perfect. 
Uptake Alliance is a, is a venture development program with our initial set of funding from NYSERDA, New York's Energy and Development uh, Group, uh, Energy Research and Development Group, um, is a venture, venture development program focused on creating the conditions for frontier climate ventures to thrive. We do that, as you know, I alluded to before, by starting with corporates, their challenges, and executive who's, who's willing to pay for those challenges to be solved. And then we articulate those challenges. Um, you know, that can be either through simple articulation of problems, problem statements, and to your point, metrics of success, or that can be part of, you know, as we've done with PG&E, a much more holistic R&D strategy where, where we articulate not just the challenges, but the, their, their true north strategy, where they're going, and the role of R&D and innovation to get there. And our thesis is if we're able to start with those corporates and their the problems that if solved could meaningfully move the needle on revenue, cost, risk, decarbonization, and we're able to recruit the startups who are best positioned to solve some of those challenges, we are likely to create the conditions for uptake for adoption. Um, so that's that's the thesis that that we're working working on. Um, we opened our first applications. I think it was roughly a month ago. We had 117 initial applications, which we were excited about, um, and we're we're interviewing folks at, at, at this moment. I was, had a couple awesome interviews today, um, sort of teeing up the the first cohort or collective to start in January. That's fantastic. Honestly, I there's a question that I've been wanting to ask um, related to that. But congratulations, first off, um, as someone who like I guess has become very familiar with the MVP or pilot of death, which is you know this mm. endless time where you're either trying to get a pilot, figure out a pilot. I think this exact road to commercialization is where a huge market gap is needed. And you know whether you solve it or not, I think having a community around that problem will solve a lot of things. Um, so I'm really, yeah, so one, really, of the, really one of the things that we're trying to do is bring in weathered entrepreneurs who have done this before to help guide these market ready ready companies toward toward these these deals, right? Um, you know, partner Frank Yang has negotiated really compelling um, you know contingent purchase orders, for example, milestone based JDAs where you you structure things for that pilot. In, in preparation for deployment at scale, right? You, here's the pilot, but here are the milestones of success in six months, in 18 months, in three years, in four years. If we hit those metrics, it triggers a different activity. If we hit those next met metrics, it triggers a different activity with the understanding that, that the, the, the conclusion of that process is a robust partnership for, for deployment. Um, you know, there's funding along the way to ensure that, um, you know, you can minimize the amount of dilutive funding that you need to take along the way because you're, you're getting investment from the corporate who's ultimately going to see the success at the end of that day, at the end of the day. So, I mean, it's just, just one example. There are certainly many different par partnership mechanisms to optimize um, outcomes from, from every, every side, but certainly everything that we're doing from uptake is to bring in the seasoned weathered entrepreneurs that have, you know, climbed that mountain before, right? It, you know, we think of entrepreneurship as, you know, a journey into the unknown, right? Like that's, there's some definition of, of entrepreneurship, um, you know, middle French or something like that, that, that says that that's what entrepreneurship means, like into the unknown. And we've been there. We've all been there. We, we get it. Um, 
the folks that we're bringing in to help guide you and the, the infrastructure we're building around this, this program is built around the idea that we've climbed similar mountains, right? Like we've, we've, we've tackled similar challenges in the past and we haven't climbed your mountain. Um, you know, that's, that's your mountain to climb, but we can, we can guide you through the unknown through everything that we're building. I think that you, and you talked about like your own personal experience, kind of seeing and trying and seeing the difficulty of selling into corporates. I think that's especially relevant. Can you talk about the role that NYSERDA plays in this whole system? Of course, you know, it's very obviously this is a problem, but how does a government or government related institution then factor into this? Yeah. So NYSERDA has been, been fantastic to work with. Um, you know, they, our our history with NYSERDA uh, is actually reasonably long, even on this project. So we've we've done various work on building warranties with NYSERDA. I encourage people to check it out. Some really novel thinking around um, <clears throat> around finance financial products for buildings. But as it relates to uptake specifically, we did some work with NYSERDA three or four years ago. Um, we called it New York as first customer. We we interviewed fifty plus entrepreneurs on some of the, the challenges for, for them in driving adoption. And a lot of the insights that we gathered for NYSERDA for that effort three or four years ago found its way on a, on a long journey, which many people claim credit for and should claim credit for to get to the point at which um, they were ready to issue this pawn for a, a climate tech growth platform um, that we were privileged to be, to be awarded. Um, you know, the process of working with NYSERDA, you know, there are certainly moments where we as entrepreneurs, we want to just like move fast and break things. And NYSERDA is like, can you please not break things? Um, and so that is part of like working with a government organization that, you know, an entrepreneur's instinct isn't always aligned with, with state government. But the, the advantage of that is that you have the resources of, of one of the, the most forward looking states in the country to put to bear to bring to bear on that right and so that's connections with corporates with gsas with with others it's it's this ecosystem of of other accelerators and incubators that all work together to serve this ecosystem right like we're working with market ready technologies on on commercial issues right scale for climates working on manufacturing issues um, you've got incubators and accelerators through incubators in particular throughout upstate focused on things like business formation, right? Folks working on business formation aren't ready for corporate deal-making. And so this ecosystem they've built works really collaboratively together, right? And then even, even beyond us, the, the clean fight focused on really specific areas of domain with late-stage companies, um, really valuable parts of this ecosystem. So NYSERDA does all that work putting this all together. But I think the last point I'd make in terms of the, the benefits of, of working with state government is that you think about the fleet of EVs, or excuse me, the fleet of vehicles, the, the stock of buildings in the, in the state of New York, those can all be your first customer as a startup. And so, you know, because we're working with, with NYSERDA on this, on this initiative, the pathway to opening up those doors and understanding how that procurement works and possibly even influencing the way procurement of novel solutions works within within the state can be incredibly impactful. 
do you think that there's a conflict between the amount of balance, I guess, amount of consideration that you'll have to have for a, a body that says, don't break things, you know, try things. And I've heard, especially in manufacturing, that's actually really, really important, uh, is not applying this, you know, build fast mentality that we have in software mm. to hardware. Yeah. Um, do you think there's a balance that you've had to make as an accelerator differentiating the two? Because oftentimes I think what we do here is that this is a very pro-government reproach that hardware should learn from actually, which is don't mm. break everything, like make sure it's going to work. Um, but do you think that there's a balance that you're having to strike between hardware and software? And and I guess to further to that, do you look at them differently? Yeah, I mean, they're completely different worlds, of course. And, you know, maybe I'll just double click on what you're saying about about manufacturing, right? Um, you know, I, th I think there are a lot of programs, including ours, that focus on, you know, customer centricity and making sure you're listening to the customer in order to inform your your product development. And so that's this like lean agile system that that you need to need to work with. And, you know, before you get started, that needs to be, you know, that needs to needs to be front and center, right? Like you think about the way form energy was created, at least uh, the way I understand it, right? Like we are trying to solve for long duration storage. We are going to look at hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of different combinations of, of chemicals that can allow us to solve that problem, right? And so I think, um, you know, that's a really valuable way to start. But once you've picked your direction, you need to design your product for that end outcome, right? It, so often you design for that pilot without thinking about scale from a manufacturing perspective, scale from a packaging perspective, um, scale from a logistics perspective. Once you're, once you're further into the development uh, process and then you've got to go back and rethink those things, it creates a ton of rework. Whereas if you're, you're working with the right partners um, in order to, to design for all those factors, as you just start with with MVP, you're going to be much less likely to, you know, commit the entrepreneur's worst sin of running out of money um, if you're able to think think ahead. So, you know, I, I wouldn't say that that's the specific area of expertise that we're we're bringing as uptake. I think you know, scale for climate. You know, I was talking talking to today or yesterday with uh, with Dan Radomski over. Um, over over in Michigan, who's who's building some great great hard tech programs. Like I, I think there, are, that's why this ecosystem works better together. Is that there are other folks in the ecosystem that can bring some of this expertise to bear. Um, but that's that's an incredibly important set of of planning that needs to take place for hard tech. Um, that to your point isn't perhaps as mission critical for for software. And I guess further to that point. Do you think that the incentives for you as an accelerator and the incentives for NYSERDA as a governing body are different? And if they are, how do you balance aligning your goals with each other? It's a great question. Um, I think for the most part, we are very well aligned. Um, <clears throat> if you think about NYSERDA, they are funded by the ratepayers of New York. And so ultimately, we need to accelerate technologies that support the ratepayers of New York. Um, and so that means improving the affordability of the electric and gas system. 
Um, that means decarbonizing those systems. That means integrating with buildings and transportation and industry in a way such in a way that works better together in order to to better serve the the ratepayers of of New York. And you know, at, at the end of the day, that's very aligned with with our goals of of uptake, right? Like again, I'll, I'll be a broken record on this. Only metric that matters to us is is commercial adoption, commercial traction, because it covers climate impact and and market adoption in in that same in that same breath. That that is the same set of success factors that will drive impact, positive impact on the ratepayers of New York. Got it. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. It was one thing that I was wondering because I think that's a surprisingly underconsidered point when it comes to collaborations between government bodies or government leaning bodies and the private sector, which is it actually does take a lot of work to make sure that you're partnering with the right organization that will let you make the decisions you want to make because it's a lot easier when you have the same goals and different government entities have different goals. So it's not a given that even totally. if you're, you're an energy VC and an energy um, government, you know, uh, supporting body that you'll have the same goals. Um, yeah, no, that that's right. I mean, I, I will say that with NYSERDA, we probably spent, not probably, we spent five months thinking about aligning those incentives before we signed a contract and got started. Um, so it, it was a very collaborative effort that led to that alignment. It, it didn't just happen. Um, you know, and, you know, as I mentioned earlier, some of the work we did three or four years ago informed in that program. So I think there was sort of a natural, uh, a natural alignment in this case that isn't always there to your point. No, I appreciate you giving more clarity on that. Um, Perfect. So I actually, I would love to transition to the part that I'm potentially most excited about this. Um, and it's because I think it's actually very hard to learn about and very, uh, very underdefined, um, especially as far as climate goes. So that happens to be clean infrastructure. And potentially, I don't know if this is controversial or not, you have to let me know the built environment. So honestly, I'm just going to start off simple. Is the built environment the same as clean infrastructure? Man, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I, <clears throat> the way I typically hear built environment framed is primarily around buildings and um, and smart cities. Right? That that's in general the way the way I typically hear the word built environment. Where it, it, I think clean infrastructure, I I think of as as a bit broader. Typically, you know, I'll think of that as, you know, renewable generation. I'll think of that as, um, you know, the, the T&D system. I'll think of that um, around, um, you know, hydrogen production and, and all sorts of different ways in which, you know, the, the industrial production work together. So in my simple world, I think of clean infrastructure as broader than the built environment, but other people may have completely different definitions. Not to ask you questions on your own podcast, but like, how do you think of the, the two? No, honestly, I appreciate it. So I think this is something that actually, I know we talked about a bit, a bit before the show, but the built environment has a lot of interesting parallels to electrification. Um, and so the only thing that I would say is clean infrastructure, I think you could probably loop in to, if I'm ever seeing that terminology, I probably would assume more of a bias towards actual infrastructure. Um, versus built environment can sometimes tie into how, like, are you doing long versus short range mobility 
tied into mm. your charging or things like that. So I feel like built environment can sometimes lean more towards the overall system, whereas clean infrastructure, if I've ever seen it, has generally leaned more towards the actual projects themselves. Um, mm. But again, like your your take is as good as mine uh, because I think that's something that I've seen relatively interchangeable. Interesting. So I saw built environment as a subset of clean infrastructure. You saw clean infrastructure as a subset of built environment. Is that more, more or less? But I also think that's because I'm seeing built environment to be super broad. And honestly, yeah. probably I'm seeing a lot of energy and mobility companies getting built environment tags on them. So I think that's probably why I see it that way. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great discussion. I'll have to do some research after this to figure out how different people are talking about those, that question. So I guess also to add some uh, meat to the conversation there, what are the general technologies that you would say? And again, this it would it would be great to have this be like very short, but it could also be honestly pretty niche. What are the general categories of clean infrastructure technologies? Yep. So I, I would say first and foremost, energy in the grid. Second, transportation, mobility. Third, buildings. Fourth, industry. Um, you know, I, I think one could probably look look beyond that to you know ag tech and 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 other you know blue tech and and other places as well. But I, I think it, certainly for the purposes of of uptake, those are our four areas of focus, and I think that covers the significant majority of of emissions. Um, though you certainly could look look beyond that uh, if you're defining things more broadly. So that's a pretty, that is actually like, I mean, I get where you're coming from. That is a very, very broad definition of clean infrastructure. But also, again, it makes sense. A lot of these things intersect with each other. Are you looking at indexing on one of those or a couple of those more than others? So my personal ex expertise in, and background is more in energy, utilities, mobility um, than those other sectors. And so that's that's me, Chris Richardson, right? Like led projects over the last few years with folks like PG&E and Exelon, Constellation, National Grid, National Grid Partners, uh, Puget Sound Energy. Like utilities are a world where I, you know, I speak that language and I, I understand how those different, um, different sectors intersect with the utility, understand how risk averse utility is, but, but at the same moment, the, the need for innovation to address significantly increasing EV penetration, significantly increasing um, uh, renewables penetration, right? So that's the world in which I operate most. That doesn't mean that's where uptake operates most, right? Um, I think uptake can be a lot a lot broader than that and can bring in um, you know different areas of expertise. I guess, obviously, based on the EV button experience, I've, I've done a lot in, in mobility and transportation and freight transportation as well. But it doesn't mean that we're not equally uh, focused on on the built environment and buildings. It doesn't mean we're not equally focused on on industry. Um, and you know, certainly we've we're trying to solve the climate crisis, and we found opportunities to work work through you know cement and steel decarbonization and all these other other areas over time. Uh, I guess I can just speak for myself that you know from a personal expertise perspective, mine mine is deepest in energy and, and mobility. Definitely. And I think it's an interesting take. One of the main arguments for energy mobility and not necessarily against the other ones, but is that you often see technologies that are able to be implemented a lot quicker, uh, just based on the fact that there's a lot of momentum behind 
charging infrastructure and you know tesla and other major ev players are generally already out there versus some more moonshot technologies like carbon negative cement um, which mm. are getting to be in existence but if you're funding them you're likely funding them for the long term so the, where your expertise lines is probably pretty heavily indexed in a good way on what's actually applicable now. Given that, I do just want to ask you before we dive into anything else, how do you look at and how do you evaluate moonshot technologies? So technologies like hydrogen or nuclear or, and I, I'm speaking in energy just because you mentioned that it's your expertise, but it could even venture as far as carbon negative cement um, or like bio, uh, I think it's called uh, biogenesis, like biotically created materials for buildings. Man, I uh, I don't I don't think of hydrogen and nuclear as moonshot, right? Like, let's talk about space solar, right? Like, there's some things that are like actually moonshot, and 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 yeah. actually space space solar is starting to uh, get fewer laughs than it did a few years ago, and and you know maybe there's even something there, but like I, you know, a moonshot idea would be um, methane, you know, the equivalent of direct air capture for methane, right? Methane is an incredibly powerful gas, as we all know. It's it's responsible for roughly half of the warming we've experienced as a planet to date, yet it's only in the atmosphere for 20 years. If we were able to figure out ways not just to reduce methane emissions, but to capture methane emissions, we could transform feedback loops. But that's early TRL stuff. To me, that's a moonshot. Hydrogen, nuclear, like those are those are pieces of the portfolio that are getting hundreds of billions of dollars today and you know very they they should be part of the the energy mix in a much more serious way by 2030 than than they are today and i would be shocked actually especially in the case of hydrogen if that's not the case um nuclear has its own you know regulatory and cost issues but especially as we're trying to work toward um, you know, SMR and even micro reactors, like even smaller than the the, the reactors that that you're seeing, you know, struggle with with new scale and others. Um, there's there's a ton of potential there. So, how do I think about them? It's it's a portfolio, right? Like we need to deploy, deploy, deploy today with wind and solar and lithium ion and all the things that we work today. We know work today, um, but as we think through, you know, fusion, as we think through um, uh, you know, a lot of these other longer, longer term pathways that can, can be part of the, the mix in 2030 and 2040, um, that we, we can't let off the gas or the, the accelerator. I, I, I hate using the gas metaphor. Can't let off the accelerator on, um, on a lot of these pathways. And, you know, if, if you think about America in particular, like, we win on innovation. And if we're not focused on the next thing and we're focused just on deployment, um, we will certainly contribute toward addressing the climate challenge. Um, but we're not going to win in this next century in the same in the same way unless we're focused on developing that that next innovation. Um, I know this has been a long answer, but I, I think we also need to do more in order to ensure we're benefiting from that innovation as well, right? I mean, think about all the work the US did in the 70s and 80s to develop the solar industry. Who benefited from that? Like we benefit in cheap solar produced in China, but like we are not benefiting from that in terms of, um, you know, American companies, American manufacturing. Um, we need to make sure that as we develop 
these novel technologies. We are obviously working collaboratively with with the rest of the world, which was which is going to accelerate these innovation cycles. Um, but we need to make sure that we're positioned to benefit from all that innovation that takes place within this country. I think a lot of the legislation that's come out recently does have somewhat of an emphasis on that, illustrating the exact example that you brought up, which is, you know, technology produced decades ago isn't necessarily benefiting us as we thought. Um, And it's not solving a lot of our domestic economic issues. But the IRA, for example, does have a huge emphasis on global uh, collaboration, but doesn't really put capital behind that. And so you see a lot of incentives and, you know, especially with tax credits, uh, rebates, things like that. Those kinds of programs only benefit the people who are implementing them within certain state governments. California has a rebate program for their demand energy grid, for example, uh, but even housing and credits for housing within the United States. Um, I think that's been a really, really inspiring thing, which is you're not really trying to be too broad with it or too inspirational. You're tangibly uh, incentivizing things that are happening on the ground. Um, so I definitely resonate with that. Yeah, I mean, as as you're developing policy, there's there's traditional economics, right? And traditional economics says things should be produced wherever they are cheapest to be produced, and everyone's going to benefit from from that specialization, right? Like we will benefit from Chinese solar production in the form of cheaper Chinese solar panels, and that that is true. Like traditional economics is not wrong there. But if we want these policies to stick, it's really important for those benefits to be spread throughout this country, um, you know, certainly including including red states, right? So two-thirds of the IRA money have gone to red states. And that's going to help protect the IRA from from rollback, you, you know, it's not going to be rolled back in its in its entirety. But even different pieces of the legislation, they're creating jobs in in these states. It makes it very difficult to roll that back. And so you need to have those two lenses that that economic and the political lens when when creating policy. And you know, I think we've seen things balance a little bit more toward those those political factors to ensure that they those policies stick over the long long haul i totally agree with you there um one thing i wanted to ask before we get into the insight section of the show which is you know potentially my favorite section within mobility and within uh clean infrastructure there's been a huge problem that i've seen come up recently which is the economics of scale of investing in urban versus rural technologies when Mm -hmm. it comes to mobility and that obviously translates into charging networks and getting those out into rural areas where a lot of the transportation, especially related to trucking and everything, actually happens. So alleviating that alleviates a huge economic concern behind electrification. When you're looking at technologies, do you have an opinion on what the process of getting technologies from urban settings out into more rural areas could be? And are you looking to invest in that in your current thesis? Yeah, so I... I might split my answer in, into energy and mobility. So, and I think New York State's a really interesting example of this, right? Like you have all of the load in the state, exaggeration, a lot of the load in the state in New York City. Um, New York City has no room for solar, for wind uh, and and production. If we are going to have 
you know, a, a net zero or close to a net zero state in New York, you're going to rely on the other 80 to 90 percent of the state of the state that has land for for solar, for wind, for for renewable generation to happen to Quebec and and the hydro resources, right? And so you need you you effectively have two grids that need to work better together for the system to benefit. And so I think you know obviously one of the things you dramatically need there is is new transmission um, in order to to sort of connect those grids, and that is a dire need if we're going to get uh, get to some of those 2030 goals. Um, you bring up an interesting point around uh, around charging and and vehicles. I mean, I, I think there, there's a, a lot of uh, there's a lot of you know NEVI funds and others to build EV charging infrastructure along the highway. Um, a lot of that is geared today toward passenger vehicles, um, and that's that's great. But you'll see you'll see these parking spaces set up where you could only fit a passenger vehicle. If you're trying to fit a bus or a truck along these routes, like it's not going to happen. And so I think you know as you as people think through a lot of the infrastructure, they're being a little short sighted in thinking about this. You know, primarily from a um, a passenger vehicle perspective, you know the 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 example my uh, co-founder at EV Button likes to bring up is is the example of when he saw EV charging infrastructure with with two ports, but like one per per parking spot. So you literally you, you have twice as many ports as you could actually have cars in the situation. Like the way these things are being designed are completely illogical, and and we need to really build out the infrastructure to support bigger vehicles. Um, you know, certainly Flying J and some others are, are focused on that. Uh, you know, the last point I bring up on that is it's not yet, uh, you know, a sure thing that battery electric vehicles are going to win for big trucks. Um, you know, certainly it's pretty clear battery electric's going to win for, for passenger vehicles, probably, you know, class two trucks, pickup trucks and things like that. Um, but as you get to class eight trucks, especially long haul, hydrogen starts to look pretty attractive, right? You don't have the same um, shortcomings in terms of the weight of batteries that impacts the payload that you can put on on a, a class eight truck. Um, you don't have the same issues around the, the time it takes to to charge. You have a different set of issues around how the heck are you going to store this hydrogen underground, uh, how are you going to liquefy it? What are the costs of doing so? It's, so it's a wholly different set of set of issues. But I, I would say that, you know, as we think through our policy for urban versus rural electrification, we should also think through who might win and how we create options for the future, depending on which, which of these two technologies ultimately win for, for heavy duty vehicles. I think it's an interesting parallel because I was reading recently about aviation and mm. that trade-off has been clearly decided that battery is not going to work, especially given the normal unit economics of planes where, and I learned this recently, where they calculate into a very precise amount how the fuel is being burned as the flight goes on. So you have a reduced payload by the time you end the flight and batteries obviously throw that out of the window and, and mm. makes everything a lot more difficult. So hydrogen, again, is a question about, okay, how can you reduce weight? Um, but it's interesting to see that if you take that context and passenger vehicles context, what, how do these different like medium range solutions fall in between? 
um, and potentially needing a framework around deciding, you know, what is the ultimate technology to fund? So is it hydrogen? Um, is it some new version of a battery? Um, anything like yeah. that? So I found that super interesting. So thank you for I that. I mean, one, one quick anecdote on, um, on hydrogen for planes. So I, I see this so often where the incumbents don't trust novel technologies and therefore are, are unwilling to test them in, in, in their systems. And, you know, obviously these systems are risk averse for a reason, right? Like the consequences of failure of utilities are bad. They're worse for, for planes. Right. And so we need to be very careful about that. Um, but, you know, there's a company called universal hydrogen um, who, and, and their universal hydrogen's goal is to build the the fueling infra hydrogen fueling infrastructure for the next generation of hydrogen hydrogen planes. They're doing so with these you know large liquefied fuel capsules, so that you don't you're not like plugging in the you're not inserting a port into the plane to fuel it with hydrogen. You're just loading up capsules. It's by far the fastest way to do that um, from a logistics perspective, but Boeing and Airbus aren't going to just allow you to put that into their plane. They had to build their own plane. Like they built a hydrogen plane from scratch just so they could uh, sort of prove out this hydrogen infrastructure play, right? Um, there's a guy named, uh, different analog of the same thing where um, this guy, Tim Barrett at, uh, at Gridware, uh, you know, he's, he got a lot of initial interest, including interest that we facilitated with utilities around his, his like line sensors for, for distribution and, and transmission, but he couldn't test it on a grid because, um, <clears throat> because it wasn't proven, right? Like you can't put it on a grid unless it's proven. You can't prove it unless you can put it on the grid. And so what Tim Barrett did is he built his own grid. He built a grid that he could throw trees at. He could have fake squirrels chewing so that he could bring utilities to this little test microgrid and say, like, this is real and it works. And they said, oh, great. Now we can put it on our system. So I, I think both of these are examples where the, the structural nature of incumbents makes it really difficult to test novel technologies. And we, as you know, venture development programs and you know, folks in the ecosystem need to find ways so that we can make this more scalable, right? Like how do we build test microgrids that can be leveraged across multiple utilities and multiple startups so that Tim Barrett doesn't need to build his own test microgrid only for his own purpose. So there's, there's a lot of room that we have to grow and thinking through transformational pathways to get these, that the, get these technologies to market. No, that, that, I appreciate those anecdotes. Um, I think that's like, you know, for some of these, for a plane, it might be harder to build than a microgrid, but honestly, maybe it's not that much more difficult. So, um, but it could be a comparable. So um, I got, we're, we're getting to the, the last third of the show. So I want to make sure we get this. Um, it's the insights, insight section of the show. Um, and so I'll walk through it. So basically, we ask you a topic area. We have five topic areas we'd love to cover. If you can answer just a minute, um, I'd love to go through them and get your thoughts. Let's do it. Um, so what are your thoughts on the IRA? And what, generally speaking, have you learned throughout this journey that you didn't know previously? 
Yeah, so we talked a little bit about the IRA already in terms of stickiness um, and the way that it was designed and in what I think was a, a very thoughtful way, like great balance between a focus on deployment and predictability with, you know, and we're, we're going to be done with the ups and downs of the ITC and the PTC. We're going to have predictability um, at the same time investing in uh novel innovation, early stage efforts, launching OSED, Office of Clean Energy Demonstration, to, to test some of these early stage technologies. So I think it's, you know, all, all legislation is imperfect, but I think it's, it's a, a really strong, strong policy. Um, I think from a startup's perspective, um, it, it changes the way they should approach funding, right? If you, if you think about the way most startups operate, um, most startups we see aim for 80% dilutive, 20% non-dilutive funding on average. I, I haven't done the, ma done the math or done the analysis, but I would guess that that's roughly the pr proportion of, of companies that have scaled. Those that we've spun out and those that we've started have the inverse, 80% non-dilutive, 20% dilutive. And so I think you know, even for uptake as we develop this venture development program, it reflects a particular moment in time, not just with IRA, but also IIJA, state, state laws um, and, and regulations that make it, make this moment a particularly important time to know how to uh, raise federal and state dollars uh, or, or be awarded federal and state dollars to accelerate your early stage innovation all the way through deployment, right? A lot of a lot of this dollar, a lot of these dollars are focused on deployment in a way government dollars typically haven't been, you know, throughout the throughout the decades. So it's it's a special moment in time, you know. Collectively, me and my team have raised a couple million dollars in federal funding. Um, we know how to play this game, and and a lot of the work that we're doing is to support support these startups that we work with. Obviously, focused on corporates and and, and corporate adoption but also ways in which they can keep more of their company through this growth stage by, by tapping into, into non-dilutive funds. Thank you for that. So, so the next section is climate and AI. Yep. So how do you believe AI is impacting climate and is it relevant? Yeah, I mean, AI is going to impact everything, um, and climate climate is certainly on that list. I mean, I, I think one of the areas that um, we're seeing a lot of it is is trying to trying to balance the grid in real time, right? Like you have two way flow in a way that the grid wasn't built for, right? Like the grid was built for power plants distributing to through transmission to substations to distributions to distribution. Now you have all these distributed energy resources, load, uh, supply, uh, batteries that can can go go both ways, feeding into the same grid, and that presents a tremendously new set of challenges in order to to uh, balance all of that demand. And so you're starting to see um, you know derms providers leveraging predictive tools to to anticipate where that demand, that load is going to come from so that they can actually keep the grid balanced, right? Uh, I'm sure most of your listeners know, like, energy can't be stored on the TND system, right? It needs to be balanced in real time, and you need really advanced tools in order to do that. Um, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of other work in, 
in predictive maintenance, right? So one of the things that I love, one of the great use cases I love for, for AI is to, is to use computer vision to take a look at poles and wires and, and learn from all of this data to determine which assets are likely to fail so that you can direct uh, maintenance resources to address those, those locations, right? So if, if you've got tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions potentially of images of, of poles and wires, you're able to learn from those images, especially if you're able to use experts to train that system to prioritize a lot of the maintenance that needs to get done. So I, those are just a couple of couple of examples, you know, obviously a lot of work that's being done in, in materials development, that's, that's really interesting, um, you know, similar to what's happening, happening in pharma, right? Like instead of the new, you can just run simulations of different molecules to figure out what drugs are going to solve, which problems um, you're doing a lot of that same, same work right now in, in materials development as well. You've got, you know, a database of tens of thousands, however many different materials thinking through different ways, if you can model and simulate different ways those materials can be combined, you're able to dramatically accelerate the, the pace of innovation to get to the point at which you have materials that can move the needle on climate and provide you know, cost and resilience benefits as well. There's been, we had Sean Abramson from Third Sphere on and he had a great point about AI being used as a moat when it's combined with data generated from hardware because you can create a closed loop system which is you know what most open source and i think anyone who's talking about ai is kind of saying that like okay build this data moat that's mm -hmm. your only hope of having an advantage now since ai is getting so advanced and so easy to implement um and i think hardware is is a very interesting parallel to that which is using that as a way to create your own data um so i appreciate sean's that. one of the smartest guys i know so if, if agreed i believe it <laughs> agreed um, so that speaking of building hardware, the next one is about a hardware MVP. So could you just share a successful story about, and I think this is especially relevant to your work about a hardware company building other MVP and then scaling and what worked for them? Yeah. I mean, so many to choose from. <clears throat> I mean, one that, one that I love, I, I love their story is, is Mainspring Energy. So it's a it's a, a linear generator. And you know when we did some work with with PG&E, this is this is all public through the CPUC. But you know we took a look at how to find clean teams of technologies to substitute for diesel at the substation. So if you think about what happens in California with these public safety power shutoffs, they wildfires are bad, so we don't want wildfires. Therefore, you know, California IOUs will shut down transmission during high wind days because um, that can prevent wildfires. Well, that means customers are de-energized for a day, two days, three days, four days. Um, that's also bad. And so what PG&E did, which is actually you know, brilliant, is, is they deployed diesel to substations to light up customers, even if transmission was down. But obviously, you know, having the local particulate emissions from diesel is also bad. So we've got like cascading levels of bad. Wildfires are bad. Shutting down customers is bad. Diesel's, diesel's bad. So how do we think through the teams of, of technologies that can solve for that? And Mainspring was, was one of the ones that 
that showed up in our analysis, not one of the ones, the one that showed up in our analysis as by far the strongest. Um, so from a both from a cost perspective and the ability to um, you know have high utilization and and match the the technical characteristics of diesel, it was it was probably the only solution that didn't require a team in certain ways. It, it could solve some of those challenges uh, directly. And so it worked with PG&E on, on a pilot at a substation, which was very successful. And it's, it's used some of the an analytics that, that we did to grow, grow that account to support big, big box retail, to support um, EV fleet charging. You know, a lot of this in California where you can have these multi-day multi shutdowns and having the ability to to ramp up and ramp ramp down is is incredibly powerful. Um, so it was just a, a great example of of how you start small with the right solution, solving the right thing for the right customer, and using that as the proof point to to scale. And um, I'd have to look to see how many hundreds of millions of dollars Mainspring has has raised at this point to deploy their their technology. But it's it's definitely in the hundreds of millions of dollars through partnerships with NYSERDA, or excuse me, with Nextera and others. Um, and so it's just been really exciting to see see them go from some of these early early days as a as a small, you know, 10, 12 person company to uh to the scale at which they're at today. I was gonna ask, how about how about the money they made from revenues from from pilots, but but well <laughs> I uh, uh some of that may be confidential. So yeah, I, I guess uh... we'll hold we'll hold up on that. <laughs> Uh, no, I appreciate that. I feel like in climate, it's very unique and we can get on this, you know, either after this or maybe even another episode. But I think climate's very interesting because there's such it's such a deep tech heavy field or it can be, sure. especially when you're pushing frontiers of technologies that you're able to market map out. OK, this is a problem. What's a holistic solution? And oftentimes there's quite literally, like you said, one technology that does yeah. it in the right business model. Usually the technology exists, but it's usually the right business model and it clicks. And so I think I'm hearing sort of a similar story there. So I'm I'm very happy that you found that um, and got to participate in that. So the the fourth one is existing portfolio. I think this for this I'd actually love to pivot this to hearing about the current application process and just what you're thinking and seeing. What are the biggest mistakes that you think people miss that people have when thinking about corporate pilots and partnering with corporates to bring technology to market? Yeah, it's a uh... It's a great question. Um, I mean, I part of it is is not their mistake. It's just structurally what's hard, right? No utility, for example, wants to be a first customer. They will be the second or the third or the fourth, and and so I think that is that is just a a difficulty of of the market. And so I I wouldn't necessarily say that that's a mistake they're making. It is a failure of the system. And our goal is to correct that failure of the system to the best we can by articulating the problem statements and engaging with um, the executives who have have the the willingness to pay to solve them. Um, so I, I think I think some of these things are just hard if there's not a structural shift. And our goal is to affect that structural shift. Definitely, and I think that's that's something that we've noticed certain companies not really be able to get along with because they go the route of, okay, how do we overcome that? How do we enact that shift on our own? One really, really interesting thing that we've seen is people who try to hire ex-corporates of the mm. corporates they're trying to target. So 
someone who works within utilities. And I actually would want to know your take on this. this is a little bit different than the insights, but I'd love to know your take. One thing that they've actually found is that it's not always guaranteed. And oftentimes it's not really the case that an ex-corporate will help you in working with that corporate or a corporate of a similar kind. Do you have a similar experience when looking at the talent of your team and working with corporates or is it not like that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the individual matters too. Um, the, the relationships matter. So like if you've worked at one corporate, you may have a good relationship with that one corporate, right? And especially in utilities, right? Like that is that is one service territory. That doesn't necessarily mean you have relationships with the other 900 IOUs and the other whatever. I'm, I'm 5,000 co-ops and munis that we have in this country. I'm sure my, my numbers are off there. So it, it, it sort of sort of depends on, on the individual. <clears throat> I mean, I think what can be more effective than um, just hiring someone who came from the corporate is, is partnerships, right? Who is already, who already has their hooks into a lot of these corporates that you can partner with? Um, you, you know, if, if you're trying to sell in utilities, how is your offering complementary to that of someone else who already has a successful presence that might be able to offer your product or service as an add-on to whatever they're already offering. And so I would, I would think through, you know, not just the individuals you can hire to your point that know this person and that person, but the partnerships and deals that you can make in order to sort of more structurally open up some of those opportunities that may not otherwise be there. Got it. And the last, I, because we moved to that point, I just want to ask the last one. Uh, this is potentially our, the most fun one, which is if you had to quit your job right now, which you just started, haven't even gone through the application process, but if you had to quit right now and start a new company in a space and climate, what would that space be? And generally speaking, what's a problem you think you'd really be excited about solving? It's, it's a great question. So I think I'm in the right zone for me right now right? Um, I'm a novelty seeker. I'm really good at starting things. I'm really good at getting things to the point at which they are viable. There are other people that are better that, than I am at taking it from that point. And so the space that I'm in now gives me the opportunity to start new things and help other people start new things and and be involved in so many different things that that breathes life into me and, and gives me energy. Um, and I, I, I think I'm, I know it's not the answer to your question, but I, I'm, I'm in the right spot for this moment in time. You know, I think there, there is a world where, you know, sometimes I, I you know, I'd be, if I found the right technical team that, that had a, a, a really compelling solution to a really compelling problem, but they didn't have the commercial leadership, um, I think there may, there could be a point in my life, you know, five plus years from now where, where I decide to take on, take on that challenge and build a commercial team from, from the ground up. Um, but for, at, at this moment in time, I, I'm enjoying the multiple hats and, and the opportunity to, to impact climate in, in so many different ways. It's always a potentially tough question because if at this point in your career too, if you wanted to, you probably Just could. Just do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So it's it's a very speculative question, but you know sometimes we hear actually Sean himself was saying climate defense, and so that's just Ooh. 
he doesn't necessarily invest in that. So hearing that was really, really interesting. So you can get, we get good nuggets occasionally on that. So um, very cool. And so again, I appreciate all of that. There's a lot of different topics I'd love to, to talk about, but I think we're getting towards the end of the show. So I just want to make sure I ask you, you're in a unique position where you're actively reviewing a lot of companies, potentially unpolished companies, because your uh, um, accelerator is new and you're seeing a lot of new uh, opportunities within infrastructure and within this whole piloting process. As you grow and as you expand, people will have more materials to engage with, so they might get more refined. But in its most raw version, what are you seeing within your application, like the application pool? And if you could give advice to the next round of applicants, what is some of that advice that you would give? Yes, it, it's a good question, a good question to end on. So the the advice I'm going to give is not necessarily specific to uptake. It's, the, it, it's, it's applicable to applying to anything. You need to understand what success looks like for the thing you're applying to and tailor your your application or your needs your articulated needs to that fit uh to that to that question right and so if i think through every grant i have won over time and every grant i have application i have lost over time it had nothing to do with how good my proposal was right some of the best proposals i wrote were not accepted. Some of the most mediocre proposals I've I've wrote, written, which included like a lot of copy and paste type things, were accepted. The reason they won is because they were the best fit for what the organization was looking for, or best fit for what the grant was was, was looking for. And so I think the same takes the same is true with uptake. Um, you know, you have you have people. Uh, we're about adoption. We're we're about accelerating commercial traction. And so, you know, even even today, some folks were coming to us and saying, you know, what's the biggest challenge you need need to to address? Like, we need UL certification and manufacturing support. Like, that's great. Like, we are not the accelerator that is going to be best positioned to help you with that. Uh, if if that is by far your number one issue, and you know, commercial traction, you you've got more demand than you could possibly solve for, right? Um, you know, if you've if you've got folks who, um, you know, really are relying on subsidies for for their business to the tune of 75 percent and don't have a path toward um, toward a, a viable product like that's also probably not a great fit for us because that is not something a corporate is going to invest in or a relationship they're going to invest in over the long run. Um, so I, I guess I'd answer your question both specific to uptake and and more broadly to say when you're applying to anything it's it can't be square peg round hole it needs to be very uniquely tailored to the the opportunity and i think that is something that most people i think in almost all stages of running an accelerator can learn from because even on the investor side i worked in vc for a little bit and so seeing pitches that weren't really tailored towards the thesis of a vc yeah. um potentially even in advertising that they were a stage of company that the VC didn't recruit for or didn't fund. You know, it's it's funny how these little, little things can be overlooked. Um, so if anything, like I would guess, especially in a situation like yours, where the space is already confusing enough, that that would just make the process a headache. So I appreciate know you. Know your audience. Yeah, know your audience. 
Um, but yeah, on that note, look, I've loved this. I actually, I, I really, I feel like we left everything just at the point where it could have turned into another hour. So would definitely, especially as uptake progresses, would love to have you on again to hear about how that's going and how things are building out in terms of the ecosystem. For now, as we close this out, where can the people find you? Yeah, thanks so much for this opportunity. Awesome conversation. Uh, find me on, on LinkedIn, Chris Richardson, Uptake Alliance, and, and you can find us at uptakealliance.com. Perfect. Well, again, thank you so much. I think the audience will leave this much more educated on the issues with piloting, as well as not e similarly not equally knowing what built environment is compared to. <laughs> but uh, but I enjoyed and I think everyone else will too. So I really appreciate this. Awesome. Great Thanks. conversation.